This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, September 23rd. I'm Matt Hoish. In today's headlines, San Miguel residents eligible for Pfizer vaccine booster, county discusses Lawson Hill mine tailings, masking at the AHA, and a mountain weather forecast. An added layer of COVID vaccine protection is coming to some San Miguel County residents. Last night, the FDA authorized booster shots for older and at-risk Americans. That's San Miguel County Public Information Consultant Lindsay Mills speaking on KOTO on Thursday. The booster won't be available for everyone. Currently, the Federal Food and Drug Administration has only approved Pfizer for the booster shot to the more general public. Last month in August, they had approved Moderna and Pfizer, both mRNA vaccines, for booster doses for immunocompromised Americans. So this is a new development for Pfizer only. Those eligible for the Pfizer booster include any resident 65 years and older, individuals with underlying conditions, and frontline healthcare workers. In San Miguel County, the announcement won't have major impacts off the bat, the majority of residents either received the Moderna or Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And, according to Mills, the Moderna vaccine hasn't seen a decrease in efficacy. Overall, Moderna has not yet provided data saying that there's waning immunity from the first two-dose series. That could change over the coming months. Pfizer was the first of all three vaccines that was authorized. So there's more data surrounding Pfizer than there is around Moderna, just because there has been more time that has passed, and then even less so for Johnson & Johnson. Mills notes the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has also released data showing the vaccine remains strong after the one dose. But J&J has also applied to the FDA for a booster. Public health has long stated vaccines are the most effective way to stop the spread of COVID, and as a county, San Miguel is doing well with vaccination rates. Still, the county has seen an increase in coronavirus cases as summer turns to fall. You know, we're still reporting double-digit cases. Testing is occurring really effectively in the East End. We're not seeing as high testing rates in the West End, um, which is concerning for disease control in the end. The more we know, the better we are able to contain the spread of COVID-19. And, you know, through vaccination, of course, this is the best way we can prevent severe outcomes, hospitalization and death from COVID-19. Mills notes as the county heads towards winter, even with vaccines, individuals should take caution. We can learn a lot from the data we have from the last year and a half of the pandemic and more. Um, And looking at last summer leading into last fall, this is about the time when we started seeing spikes in cases. When we were reporting one or two COVID cases, maybe a week, we started reporting double digit numbers as soon as it started getting cold. And we're feeling that now. We saw it in warmer climates this summer where it was too hot to be outside. COVID spread rampantly indoors. That expectation is still pretty strong that this spread could continue as we all move indoors. She urges everyone to go back to basics. Limit group size, wear a mask, maintain distance, and wash your hands. San Miguel County has a mask mandate in place until the end of September. Public health will discuss extending or repealing the mandate next week. Mills says public health is looking at a number of data points from the last month to come to a decision. This includes spread amongst children, which continues to increase, in fact. So the mask requirement indoors amongst school children becomes increasingly important, especially as the colder months take hold, um, including, you know, on the east end, 
We just had one of the largest festivals of the summer. We would like to see the reaction from that over the course of the next two weeks. At the same time, we're seeing severe disease in the West End with increased hospitalization. Some of our COVID-related deaths have occurred over in the West End. So the severity of disease in the West End is also of concern and something that public health will be taking a look at. Testing, Mills adds, is key to identifying those data points. The more we test, the better informed public health can be in their decision making, especially surrounding things like mask requirements indoors. San Miguel County Public Health is hosting a number of vaccine clinics over the next month. There will be a Pfizer clinic in Telluride on Friday, September 24th at the Intermediate School Gym. There will also be Moderna vaccine clinics in Telluride on Friday, September 24th at the Intermediate School Gym and on Friday, October 1st in the Miramonte building on Main Street. The vaccine clinics are available for individuals getting their first, second, or third dose. Free COVID testing is available Tuesday and Wednesday in Lawson Hill, Wednesday in Norwood and Mountain Village, and Thursday and Friday in Telluride. Registration for the vaccine clinics and testing is available at sanmiguelcountyco.gov coronavirus. Mine tailings in Lawson Hill are likely above safe levels and need to be mitigated. It does show that we had high levels of lead and arsenic and certainly higher than what would be acceptable. That's Joni Sandoval, on-scene coordinator for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. She spoke before the San Miguel Board of County Commissioners this week. The mine tailings in question are in the heart of Lawson, near the Conoco and baseball fields, around Keystone Loop Trail, and at the Lawson Beach, which is of concern for Sandoval. I've been told that kids frequently play on this little beach area. It's probably semi-attractive to kids because it's easy access to the river. It really does uh, look and feel like a beach, and tailings are typically crushed, well, it is crushed rocks containing different types of heavy metals, and that can be attractive for children because it's basically like a sandbox. When it comes to what those tailing and metal levels are, that's harder to tell. The EPA recently took samples of the area, but are still waiting for official results from the tests. Sandoval's preliminary readings are based on in-field observations. She notes several factors can make those readings less accurate. One would be moisture in the soil, and so the samples need to be dried out. Another would be rocks and uh, other pieces of debris outside of any tailings or sandy-type material. Um, That could also impact the readings. Um, And so what happens when you take samples, if, if you need quality data, you have to take them and sieve them, which is filter out any... Uh, rocks or or other debris, things like that, and then dry it out. Um, And then you can do a better metals analysis, and that's what we've done. When it comes to possible tailings remediation, Sandoval says there could be several options, but capping the tailings in place likely isn't one of them. I'm going to be really transparent with you. I think that capping in place if you're in a floodplain is not the smartest thing. If you're in a floodplain and you cap in place, it's a Band-Aid. You're still going to have groundwater, you know, leaching into groundwater from tailings, which might not, you know, be a huge deal to folks unless they're on well water. But um, we need to talk through all those pros and cons of like different types of measures for remediation. Another challenge 
The tailings sit on land owned by three different entities, Genesee Properties, San Miguel County, and Lawson Hill. A remediation project will likely require buy-in from all three. What I don't want to do if we did find something is clean up only the Lawson Hill open space and then potentially have this other material owned by other folks recontaminate the areas we've cleaned up. Does that make sense since it's upstream? Sandoval expects to receive the official findings from the mine tailings in the next several weeks. However, she notes any remediation process likely won't take place until next year. That's in part because the EPA is already working on a number of other projects in the area. We are still working on the valley floor until the end of October, early November. And I also have a project in Ofer, the Howard Fork Tailings. A slightly longer time frame isn't inherently a bad thing. It gives both the EPA, the county, and the community more time to understand and process what the project will look like. County Commissioner Hillary Cooper points to the current Valley Floor project that received a contentious response from members of the community. A public process should happen well in advance of any decisions that are made uh, in terms of where you are hauling to. I understand the emergency action and that the EPA doesn't necessarily um, need to follow a public process, but I think we've all seen what happens when you don't. And so um, we are here and willing to help you host uh, those those public meetings uh, to at least make the community aware of um, any kind of time frame. Sandoval committed to keeping the community as informed as possible. She plans to update the Board of County Commissioners further once official tailings results are in. Like so many people, last spring, Kristen Kwasniewski was wearing a mask almost everywhere. I wore a mask to work, I wore a mask at work, and then I wore a mask home. And so my identity more or less just became this mask, right? Uh, Whichever mask I picked up on my way into work that day. The experience stuck with her. I started really thinking about what that meant for me as a human and for all the people that I interacted with and the people that we did see every once in a while. And uh, it just seemed like we should reclaim the concept of masks. Kwasniewski is the adult curriculum manager and gallery coordinator for the AHA School for the Arts. That idea of reclaiming masks led to masked. The latest exhibition at the AHA, and one of the first in their new building in Telluride. Kwasniewski reached out to several local artists to reinterpret and put their own spin on the broad concept of masks. Masks are really, they've become a little bit scary or a little bit more of a shield. And I think that there's a lot of room to play with the concept of masks. Masks have been around for eons um, as religious symbols, as costumes as a way of transforming your identity in a really interesting way. Let's walk through it. Let's walk through it. Is there an order that's meant to be seen in or I don't know? There's no order. It's really whatever draws your eye first and then I encourage viewers to kind of wander as they see fit. It's a small exhibition so you're not going to miss anything. Kwasniewski takes me through the exhibition and the pieces in it run the gamut. Some are literal masks. Hoodala Van Hilly used clay, glass, and wire to make a black and blue face mask titled Mask 2. Anybody who knows Hula knows that her ceramic work is 
exceptional. And this mask just has such personality. Uh, anyone who comes by the gallery will know it as the mask with the porcelain teeth. Melissa Sumter and Zyla Harris turned to wire and old dress pattern pieces to make a roughly two-foot-tall mask that looks almost papier-mâché'd. It seems wise to me. There's, there's a calmness in this face that I really love. Other contributors used masks to make other things. I've made prayer flags out of almost everything, not everything, but a lot of different things for 25 or 30 years. Local artist Kathy Green says she'd had the idea to make prayer flags out of masks for a while. So when Kwasniewski reached out to her, she knew what to contribute. Green bought masks from other local artists and stitched them into a line of flags that hangs along the back wall of the exhibition space. My concept is they were just flapping in the wind, keeping the COVID away from everybody and maybe sending it into outer space where it could freeze to death and never come back to planet Earth, but that hasn't happened yet. For Diva Chisonis, it's her first foray into visual art. Mostly, she writes. So she used masks as paper, writing haiku poems about wearing masks on the masks. Visitors are encouraged to rifle through them and read the poems. She calls the piece Masku. Chisonis sees similarities between the 575-syllable structure the haiku form requires and life in the pandemic. There's a constriction, there's something in between, there's something binding me, you know, to a law, which is kind of what we're doing. We're trying to stick to mandates and understand them and react and do what we do. She feels the work is a sort of time capsule. To kind of um, make sure that uh, we can uh, transfer this information and how we felt and what we did and what we didn't do or what we should have done, you know, to our grandkids or something like that, who hopefully will not have to go through something like this. Green has similar feelings about all the art in the exhibition. I won't be at a cocktail party in 40 years, but you might, and you can talk about when you had to wear masks. So that could be, you know, I just think it's part of our history, and it's a really fun way to document it and make it interesting and not make it onerous. The masked exhibition is on display and open to the public at the AHA School for the Arts through the end of the month. Forests are complicated, and so are forest plans. On Wednesday night, about 50 people gathered virtually for an open house to discuss and provide comment on the Grand Mesa, Uncompahgre, and Gunnison National Forest's new draft forest plan. The plan was last updated in 1983. Since 2017, the Forest Service has been working on the new plan, which provides big-picture guidance on pretty much every aspect of forest management, from recreation to timber harvesting and paleontology. Now we're at the stage where we've published a draft plan, and we're about a third of the way through our 90-day comment period that ends on November 12th. That's Jonathan Tucker, assistant forest planner for the GMUG at Wednesday's meeting. In addition to members of the Forest Service and members of the public, local government leaders also attended the open house, including San Miguel County Commissioner Hillary Cooper, who underscores the local importance of the plan. 
She notes that with about 65% of the county being public lands, the county values its relationship with the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management. Essentially, this is a master planning process for our public lands, and their master planning process obviously impacts our master planning process and our land use as well. Oftentimes, our natural resources don't recognize boundaries. Tucker notes the Forest Service has integrated input from thousands of public comments over the last few years to develop several goals for the forest plan update. One is integrating recreation as a key factor. It certainly is no mystery, especially at this point, that recreation on our public lands in Colorado is skyrocketing in popularity and interest. I think some of us certainly feel that the pandemic and the need to get outside and enjoy nature has certainly contributed to that, although that wasn't in consideration when we started this process. Another is making the plan more accessible by simplifying some parts of it. In the current forest plan from 1983, you'll see there's quite a bit of difference in management area allocations. So simplifying the framework will help implementers and the public to accomplish projects on the ground. The Forest Service also aims to balance the need for big game connectivity with pressure for more recreation trails. One way to do that is limiting trails to one mile per square mile in wildlife management areas. Rachel Strala is an area wildlife manager at Colorado Parks and Wildlife. She notes that's a studied metric that allows habitat to still be useful to animals. When we start exceeding that limit, we're talking about our human presence causing disturbance and actually making habitat unavailable and less desirable to animals, um, especially when when they've got young with them. Wednesday's meeting divided into several breakout groups to discuss specific topics, But during the general discussion, one of the main items brought up by the public was climate change. The plan presents several management alternatives with varying levels of intensity. But one question was why there isn't an alternative to manage the forest with no carbon emissions. Norwood District Ranger Megan Eno notes some emissions from management are inevitable. But what that smaller amount of emissions will result is potentially saving an entire landscape from going up in smoke. And so I think trying to shoot for an emissions-free activity um, is challenging because the work that we need to do will have that. But my argument is that by taking that smaller amount of emissions that we're potentially removing ourselves from the risk of losing the entire landscape. Forest planner Sam Staley adds the Forest Service considered climate change as a baseline assumption as they developed the plan. So it was kind of a foundational part of how we approached even beginning to think about it. The public comment period for the draft GMUG forest plan revision ends on Friday, November 12th. There will be another virtual open house hosted by the Gunnison Ranger District from 5 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday, September 28th. For more information on how to join that session and to look over the full draft plan revision, head to the Forest Service website. This Sunday is the fifth annual Out of the Darkness Suicide Prevention Walk down Telluride's Main Street. The walk goes from Town Park, down Colorado Avenue, and back. Registration and resource tables will be available in Town Park starting at 9 a.m. There will also be music, speeches, and a silent auction ahead of the walk. Corinne Cavender is the Behavioral Health Operations Coordinator with Tri-County Health Network and a co-chair for the walk. The aim, she says is to memorialize those lost to suicide. 
especially lately in our small little mountain town, we've been kind of ravaged by mental health issues and losses to suicide. So I think this is a really good time to take a moment um, and really talk about it, say the names of the people we've lost, validate the sadness we're feeling. And she adds, it's also a time to drive home the idea of hope. That there are people still struggling, and by talking about it, by doing walks like this, by engaging in other resources, that these people can survive their suicidal thoughts. Cavender says people can make their own signs or pick up pre-made signs at Town Park the day of the walk. The fifth annual Out of the Darkness Suicide Prevention Walk will leave Town Park the morning of Sunday, September 26th at 10 a.m. Red Mountain Pass is open after a closure to allow the San Miguel Power Association to do fire mitigation work. But the Colorado Department of Transportation notes travelers may continue to experience short delays for culvert replacement work just north of the Red Mountain Pass summit. And this isn't the last of the closures. In a press release, SMPA notes the highway will need to be closed at times this spring. SMPA says they will post updates as permits and closure schedules are finalized. State lawmakers are raising the minimum wage for health care workers who treat patients at their homes. The Colorado Health Institute says direct care workers have endured many challenges during the pandemic, many making as little as $11 per hour. Starting next year, workers who are paid with state money will earn a minimum of $15 an hour. Governor Jared Polis says the wage increases will help retain caregivers when more older adults need care. For a lot of people in and around Telluride, one of the top issues on their minds is housing. And it's not just an issue for San Miguel County. KOTO has partnered with multiple stations in the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition to report a series of stories looking at economic mobility through housing to understand how the challenges and possible solutions are playing out across the region. Today, we're heading north. In 2017, Vancouver, Canada became the first North American city to enact a tax on residential properties sitting vacant for more than half a year. The goal is to return vacant homes to the local rental market and raise revenue for affordable housing projects. Kyle Mackey of KHOL Jackson reports on how some western mountain towns are now eyeing early signs of Vancouver's success. In the mid-2010s, Vancouver was faced with what the city's director of housing policy and regulation, Dan Garrison, describes as an existential crisis. We were having a really intense public debate about these housing challenges and about uh, how we could address the rising cost of housing relative to incomes. Are we still going to be able to be a place where sort of normal people live and work, or are we becoming a resort? Around this time, the city also started to notice that some properties that could have been rented out were being left vacant most of the time. It's almost like wasting food in a time of abundance isn't that big of a deal, but wasting food when people are starving is, right? So the city worked with the provincial government and developed a first-of-its-kind tax on residential properties that are vacant for more than six months of the year. The tax rate started at 1% of a property's assessed taxable value in 2017 and will be raised to 3% for 2021. 
Julia Aspinall is Vancouver's Director of Financial Services. The average price for a condo is about like 800000 so 1% is 8000 And then average single home using $2.5 million, that'd be $25,000. Aspinall says it's critical for her department to be fair in how it administers the tax. That means every residential property has to declare its occupancy status annually. If owners fail to do so, the fee gets rolled over onto their property taxes. There's a robust appeals process, several exemptions, and random audits. But Aspinall says about 99% of owners declare on time. There's also evidence that the tax is making progress on its main objective. Our primary goal is not to generate revenue. It's to have that housing returned into use. However, if you do have people that can afford to own property in a city like Vancouver and leave it sitting vacant, then we think it's reasonable that they pay a tax that goes into contributing to addressing our housing problems. More than 7,000 formerly vacant properties have become tenanted since the tax went into effect in 2017. That means they've either become primary residences or now have renters. $61.3 million in tax revenue has also been allocated for affordable housing projects. Those figures sound pretty appealing to some Western mountain towns. The Band-Aid has been like totally ripped off. It's only going to get worse if we don't take drastic action and and get taxed like this. In the big scheme of things, like isn't that drastic in terms of the amount of money flowing through this community? William Dujardin is a recently resigned member of the town council in Crested Butte, where residents will vote on a vacancy tax in November. Colorado tax law doesn't allow the town to charge a percentage based on property value, so the tax will be a flat fee of $2,500, far lower than the amounts paid in Vancouver. The ballot measure is also tied to a half percent increase in local sales tax, which Dujardin says was a way to bring the community together. They are linked in efforts to bring enough second homeowners along that locals were okay with voting on it and not feeling like they were just taxing people who don't have a vote. Some elected officials would also like to see a vacancy tax in Jackson, Wyoming. But that's easier said than done, as State Representative Mike Yin learned last year. So I got more vitriol from that 2020 bill than I've gotten from any other piece of legislation that I've ever been sponsored or co-sponsored on. Yin and two fellow Teton County state legislators proposed an optional unoccupied home fee that Wyoming counties could opt into. But it didn't make it out of committee in a legislature that's notoriously anti-tax. Garrison from Vancouver also cautions that no vacancy tax is a silver bullet. The empty homes tax has not suddenly turned Vancouver into an affordable city, but it has reduced the number of vacant properties in the city. It has increased the amount of rental housing available to people in the city. The fact that the tax hasn't solved the entire problem isn't a very good reason to not try to solve the problem that it's tried to solve. In Crested Butte, Dujardin is hopeful the vacancy tax will pass. Unfortunately, he won't be around to see its impact. The former city councilman is moving to Salt Lake City, where he and his fiance believe they have a better chance of affording a home they can start a family in. For KHOL and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Kyle Mackey. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for partly cloudy skies tonight with a low around 40 degrees and a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Friday, expect sunny skies with a high in the mid-60s. Friday night should be mostly clear with a low in the mid-40s. 
Saturday calls for sunny skies with a high in the mid-60s. Saturday night, expect mostly clear skies with a low in the mid-40s. This has been the news for Thursday, September 23rd. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hi, this is Laura with Wilkinson Public Library. On Sunday, we are bringing back Mariachi de San Jose to the Transfer Warehouse in celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month. If you saw this amazing band from Grand Junction last year, then you know it's not to be missed. And if you missed it, here's your chance. There will be Loteria games starting at 3.30 and the music starts at 4.30. The show is free and open to all. We'll even have free food. Again, that's Mariachi de San Jose at the Transfer Warehouse this Sunday. Loteria games start at 3.30 and music starts at 4.30. Hope to see you there. As always, thanks for listening and thank you, Kodo. Hola, soy Claudia García con La Biblioteca. El domingo uh, vamos a traer de vuelta mariachis de San José uh, en el Transfer Warehouse para celebrar el mes de la herencia hispana. Si vistes esta increíble banda de Grand Junction el año pasado, ya sabes que no es algo que vas a poder perder. Y si lo perdiste, está bien, tienes la oportunidad de verlos. Vamos a jugar lotería a las tres y media y la música va a empezar a las cuatro y media. El evento es gratis y todos son bienvenidos. Incluye también, vamos a tener comida gratis y de vuelta, mariachi de San José en el Transfer Warehouse este domingo. Los juegos de lotería comienzan a las tres y media y la música va a empezar a las cuatro y media. Espero verlos ahí. Gracias por escuchar y muchas gracias, Kodo. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact staff person here at Kodo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.